Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. This episode was sponsored by our patrons. Deb Potter, Bree Ames Smith, Robin Brown, Skylar Collins, Julie Gray, Janelise Cannon, Kim Hokinson, Jamie Lang, Maria Sanchez, Valerie Jacobson, Jill Harrigan, Heather McKinnon, Chantel Oliver, and Caitlin McTaggart. You can become a patron for as little as a buck a month to help us make more episodes happen. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. We couldn't do it without you. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Katie. Good to be back. Season 17. <sighs> the year is 1876, and a 56-year-old woman living quietly in Norfolk was facing her own mortality. The doctor had told her she didn't have much longer to live, and there was certainly no chance that she was going to regain the ability to walk. Mm. So she decided to write a book. And she jotted down these few lines. I have for six years now been confined to the house and to my sofa, and have from time to time, as I was able, been writing what I think will turn out to be a little book. Its special aim being to induce kindness, sympathy, and an understanding treatment of horses. <laughs> In thinking of cab horses, I've been led to think of cab men, and I'm anxious if I can to present their true condition their great difficulties in a correct and telling manner. Wow. Her name was Anna Sewell, and the book was Black Beauty. <gasps> oh! A story unlike anything the world had ever seen, and one of the best-selling books of all time. Wow. Launched the phenomenon of horse girls. Ah! <laughs> worldwide. <laughs> and so much more than that, which I didn't know before reading this book. Hmm. Her imagination changed the world, especially for animals, because it didn't just launch horse girls. And that's how I thought of it. It was mm -hmm. like, oh, it's the horse book. But A, it was written for adult men, not for girls. <laughs> and B, it catapulted the animal rights movement across the world. Wow. Did you read Black Beauty growing up? No. I didn't read it till I was an adult. And I was a horse girl growing up. Well, I guess it was a unicorn girl. <laughs> yeah. All the unicorn stories. <laughs> we, were, we were sort of a secondhand horse girls getting stuff from our cousins, I think, so... Yes, exactly, because we were so poor. Yeah. If they're going to give me toy horses, horses are what I like. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to be a horse girl so bad, but mm. couldn't afford it. I could only dream <laughs> about them. <laughs> Anna Sewell's life was a beautiful, small life. Mm. It's the kind of life that would never be written about, except for the fact that she wrote a book at the end of mm. hers. But to me, her story is inspiring, not so much because of the book, but because of all of the small episodes of humility and kindness hmm. 
and for the way that she endured seemingly pointless suffering. And I guess what Anna Sewell has taught me in working on this episode is that if you spent your whole life just being kind and not accumulating achievements or trying to win or, you know, just just be kind to those around you and people and animals, all of creation, that's not only enough, but that's a beautiful way to spend your time on this earth. I love her. She was raised a Quaker, pursuing a life of simplicity hmm. and humility. She was disabled at a young age in a freak accident that injured her ankle so that she couldn't walk or stand for long periods of time for the rest of her life. Mm. And because of that, she actually formed a very close relationship with horses because horses gave her back her mobility and saved her from a life of being a classic Victorian invalid. invalid yeah. And after Black Beauty became a bestseller, she saved countless horses all over the world. Hmm. How it all happened is a wonderful tale. I'm Katie Nelson. And I'm Olivia Mickle. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating women you've never heard of. Fantastic. (laughs) I'm Celia Brayfield. I'm a British author. My latest book is Writing Black Beauty, Anna Sewell and the Story of Animal Rights. That's the British title. You called it something else in America. And it's about a very ordinary woman who wrote an absolutely extraordinary book. I've just finished reading the book, Page Turner. <laughs> Loved it. I was a little girl who loved horses. And this was alarming to my parents. They'd never kept horses. They regarded horses as an expensive upper-class indulgence. So they kind of banned me from having anything to do with horses. Now, of course, if your parents ban you from doing something, it's the greatest motivation in the world. So I learned to ride as an adult, uh, which I don't really recommend because you know what you're doing. When you're a child and you're tumbling off little ponies, you don't really know what you're doing. Um, But in the meantime, I read Black Beauty because it was the horse girl's Bible. If you loved horses or you loved animals, you had to read Black Beauty. And like everybody else, I cried and cried and cried. And my heart was in my mouth through every page. So in addition to finally getting her horses as an adult, Celia Brayfield is also author of nine novels, six nonfiction titles, in addition to being senior lecturer in creative writing at Bath Spa University. And she becomes interested in novels that had a massive social impact. Hmm. So, of course, you got Uncle Tom's Cabin, you got The Jungle, and you got Black Beauty. Black Beauty. The book is an autobiography of a horse. And the characterization of the horses is so lovely in this book. Beauty as a character is a a diligent, responsible, conformist kind of a horse. Black Beauty, His Grooms and Companions, The Autobiography of a Horse, translated from the original equine by Anna Sewell.
Chapter 1 My Early Home The first place that I can well remember was a large pleasant meadow with a pond of clear water in it. Some shady trees leaned over it and rushes and water lilies grew at the deep end. Over the hedge on one side we looked into a ploughed field and on the other we looked over a gate at our master's house. While I was young I lived upon my mother's milk as I could not eat grass. In the daytime I ran by her side and at night I lay down close by her. When it was hot we used to stand by the pond in the shade of the trees and when it was cold we had a nice warm shed near the grove. Then I started to uncover the story of Anna herself and I realised what an extraordinary contemporary figure she was. So I thought, really, this story should be told. I should get in here and do this. Anna Sewell was born in 1820, peak Regency era, peak Jane Austen. But she's not born among the wealthy and fashionable. She's born into a Quaker family in Norfolk, England. And not just any Quakers, but plain Quakers. They're the most hardcore. Mm. She lived by Quaker values all her life. So Quakers believe in a few key tenets. Um, Number one is that there is God in everyone. That's the foundation of Quaker belief. Simplicity, service. Humility, honesty. Being useful. Finding out what you could do to make life better for other people. You pursue these absolutely throughout your life. There's no priests or preachers. There's no proselytizing. Quakers are organized into groups they call meetings. And once a week you go and you have your meeting all together. But there's, again, there's no like one authority figure standing up and telling everybody what to think. (laughs) Instead, you all sit in silence, total silence. And if anyone feels inspired to speak, they might stand up and say something. But often the whole meeting is just silent contemplation together. For children, that's very difficult and boring. (laughs) But plain Quakers, they go even one step further. They're really extreme in their humble dress. They have a very quaint and distinct speech pattern. So they say thee and thou (laughs) instead of you and yours. But they also avoid art, music, dancing, literature. All those things are distractions of the world from what's really important, which is the Bible, which is simplicity, which is doing good in the world. Quaker marriages are sort of semi-arranged, and that was the case with Anna's parents. Her father was evidently a sweet man and dearly loved by everybody, but he was a pretty hopeless businessman. He went bankrupt very shortly after they moved to London. So Mary, her mother, had slid quite far down the social ladder. She came from a relatively comfortable middle-class family that had a big farm in Norfolk, but her husband was financially hopeless. And they grew up in very poor circumstances. Her poor mother had to sell almost everything they owned. Even her own wedding presents had to go. She was a very, very dutiful wife, but it wasn't a great love match. Mary homeschooled her kids. She's got Anna, and she's got Anna's younger brother, Philip, living among the poorest. 
And she's kind of of the Rousseauian school of thought. She believes in nature. School <laughs> should be outdoors. And she takes them on nature walks every day. And whatever they find, that drives what they learn. I mean, it's very hip today. Yeah, that school is $20,000 a year in Boulder. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Same here. And her mother, her mother had a great love of literature and she couldn't afford books for them. So she had the idea of writing a book for children about observing the natural world, and it was written in one-syllable words. And she met up through the Quaker network with a publisher in Norwich, the town where closest to where she came from, and managed to sell them a little book for children. It was called Walks with Mama. The big event every Christmas, and Quakers don't celebrate Christmas per se, you know, because it's not in the Bible, but they celebrate the winter holiday. Every Christmas, there's this arrival of the Christmas hamper, and it is the event. It's a gift basket for Mary's family farm in Norfolk, and the kids opened it up with shrieks of delight and relished reading the labels that their grandparents had put on the goodies inside. Hmm. And it's not toys, but it's food so that they can last the winter. (laughs) So their grandparents sent things like ducks, sausages, mince pies, apples, walnuts, pears, but they put labels on everything and and the labels would say things like, for my little maid or for my dear boy. (laughs) So charming. I am remembering, as a child, getting boxes full of spaghetti ends. Oh, yes! From our grandparents to make sure that we were eating. Here's some leftover ends of spaghetti from the factory. Pasta factory leftovers. (laughs) Oh, I will never forget it. I will never forget the uh, envy of rich kids who got to eat long spaghetti instead of Oh, the broken I, bits. I didn't know that spaghetti was long until I went to school. Spaghetti at school is so weird. And then discovering, oh. And for these kids, the summers were a dream because they got to go spend summers with their grandparents on the family farm in Norfolk. And that is where Anna learned to ride, to swim, to keep bees, hmm. and to be brave, physical courage and moral courage. So Mary, their mother, she said she gave him as much freedom as possible because she believed that's how kids would develop independence and courage. As soon as I was old enough to eat grass, my mother used to go out to work in the daytime and come back in the evening. There were six young colts in the meadow besides me They were older than I was. Some were nearly as large as grown-up horses. I used to run with them and had great fun. We used to gallop all together round and round the field as hard as we could go. Sometimes we had rather rough play, for they would frequently bite and kick as well as gallop. One day, when there was a good deal of kicking, my mother whinnied to me to come to her, and then she said, I hope you will grow up gentle and good and never learn bad ways. Do your work with a good will, lift your feet up well when you trot, and never bite or kick, even in play. I have never forgotten my mother's advice. I knew she was a wise old horse, and our master thought a great deal of her. Her name was Duchess, 
but he often called her Pet. Then, as she's coming of age, she's about 12, her father decides that they should try their hand at farming. So he, they leave the city and rent a big old farmhouse that was tumble down and that was their specialty. They're always getting fixer-uppers. They <laughs> dive right in. Anna's job is apparently to keep all the chickens, which she does with great enthusiasm. She's recording all the statistics of all the chickens, and <laughs> they keep cows. They have dreams of building this dairy farm. Uh, what they don't realize is that the couple that they have hired to help them is actually siphoning away most mm. of the money and telling them that the people aren't paying their bills where they're delivering mm. the milk. Wow. So, bankrupt again. <laughs> but they did live lives that were completely saturated with literature, with reading and writing. In, in a traditional Quaker household, in the morning, you would begin with Bible reading. But Mary, instead of that, liked to begin with reading some poetry or perhaps an essay. So her mother Mary is a bit of a rebel, but they're still going to their Quaker meetings every week. It's silent. It's boring. It lasts for two full hours. And Mary, as a child, she had memorized banned novels so that she could entertain herself during the meetings. And she would just like, recite the novels. Read them in her head. Yes. As she was sitting there. I love her. I mean, there's lots of research showing that boredom is actually often a really good skill developer. Uh -huh. And that kids who don't experience periods of boredom are often missing out on some key yeah. life skills. Like, they probably never memorized novels, banned yes. novels. Anna, for her turn, as she becomes a teenager, she just dismissed the meetings as, she called them useless. <laughs> and at the same time, she actually starts attending an actual school. And it's a non-Quaker school. And it hmm. just opened her world right up. She's learning art. She's learning music, dancing. She loves it. She is thriving. And she walked miles to school every day in all weather. She's loving it. And then the fateful day. She had a terrible accident when she was a young teenager. She fell running home from school just as any child could. She, it was raining, she wanted to get home, she didn't have a coat, she ran through the garden gate and she slipped on some wet leaves. She just slipped. Mm. And they were like, okay, rest up for a week or two, you'll be right as rain. And from that time, she never really walked comfortably again. And her mother reproached herself forever afterwards that she hadn't realised how severe the injury was. I talked to some doctors about this to try and figure out exactly what she would have done. I'm guessing that she managed to fracture one of the bones in her foot and I'm guessing that it, she suffered bone necrosis, that the bone died. She could never have known that at the time. She just keeps trying different strategies. And of course, she's wondering, like, what is God trying to say? Hmm. After her injury, it provoked a crisis of faith. 
who knows what her fellow Quakers were saying to her, but maybe people were like, Anna, what could it mean? You know, you have been learning to paint at school. You had been singing those worldly songs, hadn't you? I mean, who knows? Yeah. But something finally drove her to take a good hard look at her religion, her culture, her whole world. And by her early 20s, she left. Anna takes up painting with great enthusiasm. (laughs) You don't have to be able to walk or move in order Mm. to paint. And so she's on a visit to her grandparents' farm one summer, and she writes this to her mom. Her mom has clearly been saying, you really should give that up. This is a sin. She says... Pray do not congratulate me on my wise resolution about not going on with my oil paints, for I have heartedly repented of it since I have been here, and I've seen all the fine old oaks and elms in the bright colors of autumn. I have never seen anything so beautiful. I could not have believed how entirely just painting the view has altered the way in which I look at scenery. I am always looking for something to make a picture of. In fact, I never enjoyed looking at the country so much before. I shall send my three attempts at oils soon with the carrier. Hmm. So on the one hand, she's saying to her mom, don't tell me to stop. I love it. Yeah. But she also trusts in her mother's love enough to say, like, I'm going to send you my paintings, even though she's trying to stop Yeah, and know that they're not going to disappear. Yeah, that she won't be condemned. And their life for the next sort of 15 to 20 years was very up and down with her father moving jobs quite often. For a long period, he was a bank manager in Brighton. The Brighton! (gasps) And Anna's mother occupied herself as a volunteer social worker there. Peak Jane Austen-y time. And peak... Everything Quakers are horrified by. <laughs> exactly. Wild party scene, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> Absolutely. It's Quakers moving into the heart of Las Vegas. Her yeah. dad's going to run a bank. Yeah. For Anna, it's a whole new world. There's all kinds of amazing lectures to attend. She takes music and art lessons. She is mm-hmm. diving in. But at the same time, she is struggling with her Quaker beliefs because there are some aspects of Quakerism that she wants to keep. Simplicity and humility. She keeps her patterns of speech, thee and thou, to the very end. She Hmm. certainly retains her Quaker guilt, though, (laughs) because anything that she enjoys or anything that makes her feel proud Those are things she really, really struggles with, berating Mm. herself for it all the time. But how is she getting around? She was really increasingly unable to walk as she grew older, for her life was very limited, which meant, of course, that she relied enormously on horses and on her relationship with the family's pony.
Brighton, she witnesses firsthand the treatment of horses in all its variety. Everybody owns a horse. Like, it's like vehicles today of all kinds. It's a and you... bicycle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's everything from the most rundown bicycle to uh, Tesla. Hmm. You have the same range of horses with the <laughs> same level of maintenance and care. So their horses literally starving to death and dying of exhaustion in the streets is a very mm. common sight. Cabmen and other drivers who whip their horses as hard as they can to get them to carry on because they're half dead in the street. And then you mm. have the finest horses of the wealthy. She sees all of it. By the mid-1800s, there's a movement going on. And they've actually organized and called themselves the Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Hey! And they have a couple of key champions, some uh, members of parliament, actually from Ireland, who push some laws through on days when nobody's paying attention to make it illegal for the worst kind of abuses to animals. Mm. But to actually get those laws enforced in the streets is a completely different matter. Seems like you need a royal patron. It seems like you might. But much as people like to believe that bigwigs change the world, in this case, that would probably actually harm your cause because there's a major class element going on. These are rich people in Parliament passing laws about how poor people should treat their animals. And mm. so... For poor people, they're like, this is my only horse. I literally can't afford to feed it anymore. If yeah. I give it a day off, my family will go hungry. Yeah. So a royal patron might get you more money for the cause from other yeah. fellow rich people, but it is never going to help you reach the men who are actually working with the horses. Mm. You know what you really need? A story. Hmm. You need a story that will change people's minds and help them see the world in a different way. Mm. They need a story. They just don't know it yet. And neither <laughs> does Anna. Mm. Chapter 39. C.D. Sam. I should say that for a cab horse, I was very well off indeed. My driver was my owner and it was his interest to treat me well and to not overwork me, even had he not been as so good a man as he was. But there were a great many horses which belonged to the large cab owners, who let them out to their drivers for so much money a day. As the horses did not belong to these men, the only thing they thought of was how to get their money out of them, first to pay the master, and then to provide for their own living, and a dreadful time some of these horses had of it. And the governor who was a kind-hearted man and fond of horses, would sometimes speak up if one came in very much jaded or ill-used. One day, a shabby, miserable-looking driver, who went by the name of C.D. Sam, brought in his horse looking dreadfully beat, and the governor said, You and your horse look more fit for the police station than for this rank. The man flung his tattered rug over the horse, turned full round upon the governor, and said in a voice that sounded almost desperate, "'If the police have any business with the matter, it ought to be with the masters who charge us so much, or with affairs that are fixed so low. If a man has to pay eighteen shillings a day for the use of a cab and two horses, and must make that up before we earn a penny for ourselves, 
I say it is more than hard work. You know that's true, and if the horses don't work we must starve, and I and my children have known what that is before now. I've six of them, I'm on the stand fourteen or sixteen hours a day, and I haven't had a Sunday these ten or twelve weeks, and if I don't work hard, tell me who does. I want a warm coat and a Macintosh, but with so many to feed how can a man get it? Some of the other drivers stood round, nodding their heads and saying he was right. The man went on. You that have your own horses and cabs, or drive for good masters, have a chance of getting on and a chance of doing right. I haven't. We can't charge more than sixpence a mile after the first, within the four-mile radius. This very morning I had to go a clear six miles, and only took three shillings. I could not get a return fare, and had to come all the way back. There's twelve miles for the horse, and three shillings for me. Anna's health is declining. Anna was still very ill. I mean, she was chronically weak. Sometimes they were really frightened that she wasn't going to survive. She struggled with her mental health, particularly as a young woman. And, you know, nowadays, such vulnerability and the determination to overcome limitations like that is something I think people are very interested in. Off to the famed spa towns of Germany. Hmm. And she started going to spa towns to see if hydrotherapy would help her health, which it did. So many of her letters from this time and throughout have been newly uncovered by Celia Brayfield for her book. Quakers were not extravagant people. Being economical was a virtue. That meant that when they wrote letters, they took a piece of paper as thin as possible, not not spending too much money, and they wrote left to right. Then they turned the paper through 90 degrees and wrote left to right again. So the letters were cross-written. And furthermore, you turn the letter over and then you did the same thing on the other side. So they are extremely hard to read. And so it meant that I photographed the letters and I blew up the photographs and I photocopied the blowed up photograph and blew that up. And the, even then, you know, there were things that you had to take a magnifying glass to. So it was hard going. The good news is that Anna had very nice, even, neat handwriting, which was great. Her mother had very large handwriting, which was helpful. So, you know, the, it wasn't quite as bad as it might have been. Anna loved life in the spa towns. She stayed there for years at a time, like three Hmm. years total. I wonder, I hadn't thought about that, but I wonder how much of being in a spa town where disabled people are not unusual, right? Where there is a large population of people who understand Uh what your life is and what you're going through and you're just regular. Yes, I bet that was awesome. And also, these places are holistic places, saying music and art are part of your healing. You simply mm. must do it. And she discovered German leader, you know, art songs. Yeah. Which she sang to her dying day, according to her nieces. Hmm. Meanwhile, her dad is hired to manage a bank in Bath. <laughs> now that's convenient, a spa town. Yeah. It's sort of shrinking from its Georgian heyday, but it's still popular. Yeah. But her dad being uh, 
himself. They move to a tumble-down farm miles outside of Bath. Sure. And he commutes into Bath every day by rail. Their house is miles even from the train station. And it's mm. Anna who drives him. She also takes her mom for afternoon rides. So effectively, she's a professional coachman. She is yeah. a driver. She would have needed help to get into the pony trap or to mount her horse. Somebody would have had to help her into the saddle. But once she had the reins in her hands, it really made no difference that she couldn't walk. In order to be able to do anything, to have any independent life, to be able to see her friends, to be able to work. She was physically fearless. And it's, it's really heartbreaking when you realize what a courageous, athletic kind of girl she was until her accident limited her life. But once she was in the saddle, she was absolutely fearless. She would go out in darkness, in snow, in rain, and she controlled the horses mostly by talking to them. She had an extraordinary empathy with, with the animals. And there are lovely records of her conversation with her horse while they were driving. Being Quakers, they thee'd and thou They didn't say you, as we do now today. So she would say to the horse, thee must not go so fast. Thee will be tired by the top of the hill. Thee should go more slowly. It will be more comfortable for thee. And it worked. <laughs> it worked. Uh, she <laughs> drove her horses by talking to them. Wow. I love that. And again, she would have seen all kinds of situations for animals and mm. talked to all kinds of drivers. She's a coachman out there with all the other coachmen. Yeah. And this is what I love about her. Instead of preaching, she listened. Mm. She really listened. Anna actually, she wrote about a conversation she had, and it really highlights the class element that she and the cabbies were really able to see clearly. Here it is, she says. Some weeks ago, I had a conversation with an intelligent cabman who was waiting, which had deeply impressed me. I found there was a sore, even bitter feeling against religious people who, by use of cabs on Sunday, practically deny the Sabbath to the drivers and the horses. Mm. Even ministers do it, ma'am, he said. And I say, it's a shame upon religion. And then he huh. told me how one of the London drivers had driven a lady to church. She stepped from the cab. She handed the driver a tract on the observance of the Sabbath. <laughs> this naturally thoroughly disgusted the man. Now, ma'am, yeah. said my friend, I call it hypocrisy. Don't you? Wow. They don't even see really what they're doing. Yeah. Shame on you, cabbie. You should really honor the Sabbath. <laughs> but come and pick me up at church when I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> so the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, the movement's really struggling for this very reason. The general feeling was rich guys in top hats are marching mm. around righteously fining the poor working blokes for the way they treat their animals absolutely out of touch with reality. Yeah. That is do-gooderism at its yeah. worst. <laughs> yep. Anna understood that. She could see both sides, and I admire that so much. Their country village was mostly populated by families who lived there to work in the mines, like quintessential mm. industrial revolution working poor. Really mm. horrible conditions. So Anna and her mother set up 
an adult night school. They help families gain access to resources. They help women in the workhouse find ways out. They were there mm. to write and read letters for people. They even set up a Aww. lending library from their own books. Cool. When they moved away, these village men sent them the most heartfelt letters of thanks. You can tell that those letters really attest to the, the difference that they made in people's lives because <laughs> they listened you know, whether it was like, we need to get a source of food for this family and this family needs employment for their children, you know, whatever they needed. Yeah. Mary started writing again. She published collections of ballads and stories that she wrote, but that highlighted the real lives of the working poor and told their stories with empathy. Hmm. The amazing thing is they were massive bestsellers. Mary became famous overnight. In Anna's lifetime, the best-selling author in the family was, in fact, her mother. Her mother developed a really extraordinary literary career, terrific command of language, and Anna started to work as her editor. And their friends remarked that you know, their roles were kind of reversed because the mother was the more imaginative, more wayward, less practical one. And Anna was really quite stern and would give her mother's writing back to her and say, you need to go over this again and so on. So Anna was really as adept a writer as her mother, but also having that critical and analytical sort of mind I think she was actually not confident to write herself. Their final move was back to Norfolk, near the family farm, which Anna's brother Philip was due to inherit. Philip was living there with 14 children. He had <laughs> seven biological children, seven adopted children, when his wife suddenly died. Hmm. So Anna and her parents moved back to be closer to him, and Anna became governess to all 14 children. Jeez. And she was very happy. <laughs> Meanwhile, I have to make this amazing connection. The Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals is really on life support at this point. The only thing that enables them to continue to exist is that they are getting these injections of cash from this willowy, quiet woman who, at age 22, sent in a donation of five pounds to the cause because she believes in helping animals. Hmm. The next year, when she's 23, she inherited an unimaginable fortune because she was sole heir to <gasps> Harriet Mellon. I was going to say, is it Harriet <laughs> Mellon? <laughs> the Grateful Duchess episode. Amazing. Yes. Harriet Mellon left her entire fortune to her granddaughter, Angela Burdett Coots. Ah. And this Angela Coots, age 23, suddenly has all the money in the world. <laughs> and she is keeping the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals on life support. Constant injections of cash. In fact, wow. the, the society calls her the ever-benevolent Miss Coots. Hmm. Wow. I couldn't believe that when I found that connection. But meanwhile, back in Norfolk, for two years, Anna and her parents are living contentedly in their humble home, which we hmm. have a description of from one of their visitors, and it just sounds a lovely place. They had a garden, and they hosted endless 
children's picnics. <laughs> Anna describes her life as content to be happy, which I feel like is huge given the context of her life. Yeah. All of the struggle of the pointlessness of her disability, you know, like mm. how many times did she think, oh, like, why did I have to slip such a stupid yeah. little thing? But instead, she is content to be happy. She's finally found her peace. She sings her German leader. She hmm. is out in the garden. She's teaching her 14 nieces and nephews. She's happy, finally. Until when she just turned 50, she fell ill again. And this time it was something different. The doctor said she will not last two years. Of course, medicine was in its infancy in those days. They still bled people, for example, as a treatment. So, you know, they didn't entirely trust doctors. But she was really determined to write her own book while she could. In fact, she did live for just over six years with her strength declining. And their roles were reversed. Mary, her mother, became her editor. When she was really weak, she actually dictated the book to her mother. And sometimes she was too weak to actually hold a page of paper. So she would write in pencil on a little tiny piece of paper and her mother would collect them all and transcribe them into a manuscript. Here's Anna at the end of her life saying, I think I have something to say, and I think it can help people be kinder to horses. Black Beauty is an anthropomorphic novel. It's a novel in which an animal is given a human attribute. And in Black Beauty's case, it was the voice. But the subtitle of the novel is Black Beauty, His Grooms and Companions, The Autobiography of a Horse, translated from the original equine. So she imagined herself translating so that she actually explained to humans how horses felt, how they felt about their owners, how they felt about new experiences. But that's really extraordinary because anthropomorphic writing, it wasn't a new thing. I mean, going back to Aesop's fables from ancient Greece, animals were given human voices but they were usually given human characteristics. Whereas what Anna did, which was groundbreaking, such an innovation, was she gave the horse horse characteristics. One day during this summer, the groom cleaned and dressed me with such extraordinary care that I thought some new change must be at hand. He trimmed my fetlocks and legs, passed the tar brush over my hooves, and even parted my forelock. I think the harness had an extra polish. If the ladies take to him, said the old gentleman, they'll be suited and he'll be suited. We can but try. At the distance of a mile or two from the village, we came to a pretty low house, with a lawn and shrubbery at the front, and a drive up to the door. Willie rang the bell and asked if Miss Bloomfield or Miss Ellen was at home. Yes, they were. They all came and looked at me and asked questions. The younger lady, that was Miss Ellen, 
took to me very much. She said she was sure she should like me, I had such a good face. The tall pale lady said that she should always be nervous in riding behind a horse that had once been down, as I might come down again, and if I did, she should never get over the fright. You see, ladies, said Mr. Thoroughgood, many first-rate horses have had their knees broken through the carelessness of their drivers, without any fault of their own, and from what I see of this horse I should say that is his case, but of course I do not wish to influence you. If you incline, you can have him on trial, and then your coachman will see what he thinks of him. You have always been such a good adviser to us about our horses, said the stately lady. We will accept your offer of a trial with thanks. And then her mother finally took the finished manuscript to her own publishers, and the publishers offered her 25 little pounds to buy out the entire copyright, which was very modest, but it was very commonly done in those days. Jane Austen and Charlotte Bronte had similar deals, and I don't think anybody realised what an extraordinary thing they had. She sent out a few copies to people that she mm. thought, hey, might be interested in this. And if anything, the positive response was overwhelming. <laughs> and the exhaustion of it probably was part of what did her in. Like, oh. The comments are flooding in. Mm. And they're saying things like this, which is so amazing. I'm so delighted that I can never thank you enough for this Christmas present. I do like the book exceedingly. It's so good. No one, I think, would believe it was written by a lady. And there's all these comments about, this must have been written by a man. No one would believe it was written by a lady. The ultimate Regency compliment. Yeah, well, so it's kind of amazing. There are no female characters in Black Beauty. It's mm -hmm. all, it's the coach drivers, the cabmen, and the horses. So I think this is cabmen and coach yeah. drivers and ostlers, all men. And they're saying, I feel seen. How did she know what's going on in my head and in mm. my world? She nailed it. She nailed the perspective of all of these men who are working in the horse world. Wow. When the time came... She knew it. Her family was all gathered around her. Hmm. She had a sudden resurgence of energy. She sat up and she said, I'm quite ready. Hmm. And her mom wrote that she put her cheek up next to Anna's. And she says, a few more long drawn out breaths and she had left me behind. The angel had gone out of the house and left a void never to be filled until we meet again. Chapter 49, My Last Home I have now lived in this happy place a whole year. Joe is the best and kindest of grooms. My work is easy and pleasant, and I feel my strength and spirits all coming back again. Mr. Thoroughgood said to Joe the other day, In your place he will last till he is twenty years old, 
perhaps more. Willie always speaks to me when he can, and treats me as his special friend. My ladies have promised that I shall never be sold, and so I have nothing to fear, and here my story ends. My troubles are all over, and I am at home, and often, before I am quite awake, I fancy I am still in the orchard at Birtwick, standing with my old friends under the apple trees. She did just know before she passed away that the book had been incredibly well received, but it was actually after her death that it became a phenomenon. It sold very well in England. The Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals eventually, after much prompting by ordinary people writing to them saying, you should take this book up, they commissioned their own editions and they had them read at meetings of cab drivers. And then a Miss Georgiana Kendall of New York travelled to London. She saw Black Beauty in a shop. She bought it. You know who would love this, she says. George Thorndike Angel, great champion of animal rights over in America, and he is actually a Boston Brahmin. He married a lady from Nahant. Wow. So there's our Ethel Gibson Allen yeah. connection. He's <laughs> in that exact community. Angel was an extraordinary man. Absolutely extraordinary. He gave up his legal career to devote himself to the cause of animal welfare when he was in his 40s. And he had been waiting. He had actually written in his journal, I really wish I could come across a book that would do for the cause of animal welfare what Uncle Tom's Cabin did for the cause of the abolition of slavery. I mean, in, in exactly those terms. And when somebody sent him Black Beauty, he said simply, at last the book has come to me. And he negotiated with the British publisher... He published his own editions. He crowdfunded them through his newspaper. He dumped his money into this cause. He said, we have to sell these at a loss. I don't care if we lose thousands and thousands of dollars. This mm. is the moment. He went on the most extraordinary 40-city tour of America. And people used to buy copies in bulk to give away to people who worked with horses, drivers or drovers or carters. And by 1891, he reached his goal of distributing one million copies of Black Beauty. Wow. And it worked. It absolutely worked. Society shifted its focus. Life for horses across the world got so much better. There is actual legislation you can point to and the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals acknowledged openly and from the beginning that their work was made so much easier by Black Beauty. Seal was a very ordinary person. She lived in small villages most of her life. She was disabled, often quite seriously ill. 
couldn't work very much, never married. We're talking the mid-19th century, so, you know, her options as an unmarried woman would be very narrow. When she could, she taught in Sunday schools. Now, this is a recipe for a disaster for a biographer, because somebody like this, they will have written letters every day, but none of those letters were kept. If you were connected, a man in politics, your letters would be very carefully preserved. People would be very conscious of your heritage. But if you were just a retired, disabled Sunday school teacher living in a little village in Norfolk, people thought you were really worth ignoring. Her life doesn't check any of society's boxes of the typical achievements that would go into mm -hmm. a person's biography. Yeah. But it's the kind of life that I'd be proud to live. Even if she hadn't written Black Beauty, it would have been a beautiful little life. She spent it enduring suffering herself and trying to ease the suffering of those around her. She really wanted, quite simply, to do good in the world, and she didn't let anything stop her. Her life circumstances were hard, but she knew what she wanted to do, and she just kept the faith and kept going. And that was through periods of enormous self-doubt. I mean, her letters do reveal that she was, she really struggled with understanding how God could have allowed this to happen to her, as anyone would in those circumstances. But over time, she came to terms with her disability, and she really effectively overcame it. So in looking at her story, it really is amazing to stop and consider what elements had to come together to create a story hmm. that changed the world she had to have this really close dependence on horses. She had to have all that time spent living among the working poor, but being literate herself so that she could tell the stories. Yeah, even just the, I hadn't thought about it until the second, but when you are reading people their letters, yeah, you're genuinely inside their life knowing yes. everything that's exactly. happening to them and their families and yeah the way they really see things. She also had to have a rich imagination, maybe from all those silent Quaker meetings. Mm. She had to have the crisis of faith that allowed her to embrace the arts. Yeah. She also has to have that deep empathy and a desire to really understand. And the family legacy of women publishing. Yeah. All those things had to come together in Anna Sewell for this new way of seeing the world, this new story to help all humanity see themselves and see animals in a completely new way. I really enjoyed writing this book because it was wonderful to spend time with such a lovely human being. She was just the nicest person to write about. Like many women, I look back over history and see how the work of women is sidelined and how people do not really give women the credit that they should have often. 
So I thought really this is, she should have the credit for this because this was one woman with a very little life who made the most enormous difference. Special thanks to Celia Brayfield for bringing us the story of Anna Sewell and Black Beauty. If you want to learn more, you can find her book, Writing Black Beauty, on our website, whatshernamepodcast.com. Excerpts from Black Beauty were read by Corey Samuel on LibriVox, and you can find and listen for free on LibriVox.org, and it is Black Beauty version 2. Music for this episode was composed and performed by Minnie Vandals, Asher Fulero, Akash Gandhi, Kevin McLeod, Yosef Souk, Esther Abrami, and Daniel Foster-Smith. Our intern is Katie Boucher. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook, where we post all kinds of additional content each week. Thank you so much for donating. Thanks for listening.